There are few things we like to do here at 1001 more than finding and telling historical stories that few people have heard of. So when we came across this great story at Tim Abbott's blog, we couldn't wait to dig in. This long-lost American tale titled The American Army of Two tells the story of two sisters, the daughters of a lighthouse keeper in Massachusetts who, during the War of 1812, used their daring and imagination to turn back a British ship which was about to unload troops onto their shore. A courageous act for sure, because British troops back then didn't take kindly to Americans resisting occupation. Welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We found the inspiration for this story at the blog of Tim Abbott, who has lots of great stories to tell, at www.greensleeves.typepad.com. Typepad spelled T-Y-P-E-P-A-D. You can find this link in our show notes as well. 1001 Classic Short Stories Podcast is audio entertainment for the whole family, and you can find us at iTunes and other podcatcher sites, as well as at our website, www.1001storiespodcast.com. Our classic short stories link is in the upper right corner there. We also encourage you to add anything more you know about our stories to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S. And now the legend of Rebecca and Abigail Bates, the American Army of Two. The War of 1812 lasted nearly three years and was fought in four different theaters, the ocean's shipping lanes, along the American coast, on the western American frontier, and on America's Gulf Coast. The War of 1812 had its heroes, like Andrew Jackson, who assembled a handful of inexperienced volunteers consisting of free blacks, Tennessee and Kentucky riflemen, and Louisiana militia, along with some of Lafitte's pirates for seasoning. Then he proceeded to kick the Redcoats' backsides all along the Gulf Coast from Florida to New Orleans, where a heavy dose of courage and grapeshot sent the British running for good. Jackson, who fought bravely in both the Revolution and the War of 1812, used his fame to launch him to the presidency in 1828. Then there was Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, the Rhode Island-born naval commander known as the Hero of Lake Erie, for leading American forces in a decisive victory at the Battle of Lake Erie, which earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor and the thanks of Congress. His courageous actions during this battle earned the surrender of an entire British naval squadron. His battle cry became the often repeated expression, Don't give up the ship. But for all of Jackson and Perry's bravery, one of the most interesting stories of the War of 1812 might still be the time two young girls turned back the Royal British Navy at Situate, Massachusetts. By 1814, Britain's Navy was engaging in a war of harassment along the coast. A ship would zero in on a small town or harbor. Sometimes soldiers would ransack the town for supplies. Other times they would burn the boats in the harbor. Approximately 15 miles north of the historic settlement of Plymouth, the town of Situate, Massachusetts, was settled in 1627 by members of Plymouth Colony. 
By the late 1700s, Scituate had a thriving fishing fleet and a growing population. By the early 1800s, the local mariners petitioned the town selectmen for a lighthouse to mark the entrance of Scituate Harbor. Due to shallow areas and mud flats, the harbor could be treacherous to enter, especially in foul weather, without the aid of a lighthouse to show the way. The selectmen referred the problem to their local congressional representative, and federal funds were appropriated in 1810 to build a lighthouse at the entrance to the harbor. The Situate Lighthouse was completed in 1811 and put into service in April of 1812. Simeon Bates, a local ship captain, was assigned the job of keeper and moved into the adjacent keeper's house with his wife and nine children. These were treacherous times in America. The War of 1812 had broken out, and many towns along the coast were plundered and burned by British warships. In early June of 1814, the harbor of Situate was attacked, and although they didn't make landfall, ten fishing vessels were burned in the harbor by the British. Upon the British attack, the local militia was called out to stand guard over the town in the event of another redcoat visit. Sentinels were placed at the lighthouse, as well as other strategic spots within town, with the expectation that the British would soon return. As summer wore on, there was no sign of the British. The lighthouse sentinels befriended the Bates family, especially daughters Rebecca, age 21, and Abigail, age 15. Abigail was taught how to play the drums and could replicate the different military signals, and Rebecca was taught four different military songs on the fife, of which Yankee Doodle was the one she felt she did especially well with. Yankee Doodle was the song that, during the time of the Revolution, was sung and played by fife and drum as a sort of a turnaround of the version created by the British years earlier and intended by the British as an insult to the American colonists, whom the British considered to be simple-minded, lazy, and uncultured. Although some versions contain dozens of verses, the song pretty much starts with these words. Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony. He stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. Yankee Doodle, keep it up. Yankee Doodle Dandy, mind the music and the step, and with the girls be handy. Traditions place its origin in a pre-revolutionary war song originally sung by British military officers to mock the disheveled, disorganized colonial Yankees with whom they served in the French and Indian War. It is believed that the tune comes from the nursery rhyme, Lucy Lockett. One version of the Yankee Doodle lyrics is generally attributed to Dr. Richard Shuckberg, a British Army surgeon. According to one story, Dr. Shuckberg wrote the song after seeing the appearance of colonial troops under Colonel Thomas Fitch V, the son of Connecticut Governor Thomas Fitch. The word Yankee may have come from the Germanic word Janky, or Little Jan, describing a small girl. Ouch. The term doodle first appeared in the early 17th century and is thought to be derived from the Low German doodel, meaning plain music badly, or dodel, meaning fool or simpleton. The macaroni wig was an extreme fashion in the 1770s and became contemporary slang for foppishness or the art of men's dressing so fancily that it looked, well, silly. 
Dandies were young Englishmen who adopted feminine mannerisms and highly extravagant attire and were deemed effeminate. They were members of the Macaroni Club in London at the height of the fashion for dandyism, so-called because they wore striped silks upon their return from the Grand Tour and a feather in their hats. They also wore two fob watches, one to tell what time it was and the other to tell what time it was not, ran their joking explanation. Their love of horse racing at Cheltenham and Byberry, both in England, can still be recognized today in the names of the 18th century Macaroni Farm and Macaroni Woods near Eastleach, Gloucestershire, UK. The verse implies that Yankees were so unsophisticated that they thought simply sticking a feather in a cap would make them the height of fashion. Peter McNeil, professor of fashion studies, claims the British were insinuating the colonists were womanish and not very masculine. So, as you can gather, the average colonial man in America was, to the British, a Yankee doodle dandy, or a lazy, effeminate simpleton. Forget the real causes of the American Revolution. Once this insult was turned into a song, the war was on. But you have to hand it to the upstart colonists. They picked up the song and played it every time they kicked the British hindsides, starting with Saratoga, and then later when General Cornwallis's troops surrendered at Yorktown. When Cornwallis's defeated and humiliated troops marched out of the town to surrender, playing The World Turned Upside Down, they were met by an American band playing, you guessed it, Yankee Doodle Dandy. So whenever you hear Yankee Doodle Dandy mentioned, it carries quite a bit of American pride, as well as the fact that we Americans can take it and hand it back with grape shot. Now back to Abigail and Rebecca. By September, the men had gone home. And that was the state of play one day when Rebecca, Abby, and their mother observed a British ship making directly for the harbor. It seemed that the fears of the residents had come true, but no one was ready to repel the landing force. The militia was gone. With their father away, the Bates girls dispatched their brother to run for help. And that's where we join Tim Abbott's story. He writes, Americans have a long-standing fondness for David and Goliath stories, particularly those in which our scrappy homegrown underdogs beard the oppressing giant. They are an established part of our national myth and cultural heritage. Longfellow captivates his readers with tales of, quote, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, end quote, and turned back the British after Concord. And others like, quote, John Henry drove his 15 feet and the steam drill only made nine, Lord, Lord. End quote. And for those of us a certain age or older, the miracle on ice when the U.S. Olympic hockey team, mostly college guys playing against professional teams from Russia and Finland, overcame incredible odds to win the gold medal in the 1980 Winter Olympics. And even after suffering tremendous losses, we're quick to salvage something of our own, such as Doolittle's bombing raid on Japan, a forlorn hope that became a great propaganda victory just four months after Pearl Harbor. Local history abounds with these stories, from Sybil Ludington's ride to Barbara Fritchie waving the flag of the Union at Stonewall's Confederates as they marched toward Pennsylvania. Tim continues, I came across a classic tale of this sort recently from the Maritime History of Massachusetts during the War of 1812, the story of the two daughters of a lighthouse keeper who by pluck and invention saved their town from British marauders. The tale, like all good yarns, may have grown in the telling, but young Rebecca and Abigail Bates are widely remembered in New England lore, poetry, and folk song as the American Army of Two. 
The story goes that Simeon Bates was the keeper of the lighthouse at Situate on the shores of Massachusetts Bay and lived there with his family during the War of 1812. He had a number of children, but the two principals in this tale are Rebecca, who based on her obituary would have been about 20 at the time this story takes place, and Abigail, who was about 15. Either late in August or early in September, 1814, a British warship was sighted offshore and prepared to launch barges toward the lighthouse. Simeon Bates was away from the lighthouse, and only his wife and the two girls were on hand. The girls, knowing the militia would not get there in time, decided to hide from view and play a fife and drum to make the enemy think the soldiers were coming. They struck up Yankee Doodle, the British ceased to row, and the warship, not wanting to be caught in the harbor if the area militia had a cannon at their disposal, recalled the men in boats and left in haste, much to the joy of the young saviors of Situate. It is a wonderful story. It delighted young readers of St. Nicholas Magazine, which ran the story Rebecca the Drummer in July of 1874, written by Charles Barnard and based on an elderly Rebecca Bates recollection of the event. Rebecca Bates went so far as to sell affidavits of her story for 10 cents. There were apparently contemporary doubters of the tale, as well as at least one modern one. Nonetheless, Becky's sister Abby, who survived her, was reportedly born to her grave by uniformed GAR veterans, and since then her account has been widely repeated as factual. If the extensive research by the Situate Historical Society concludes the story is likely true, we are not likely to settle the matter further with some online sleuthing, but let us see what further details we can add from the historic record. The blockading British apparently approached Situate by sea on three occasions between June 11 and July 9 in 1814. The June 11th raid took place as barges from two British ships entered Situate Harbor and burned or carried off a number of vessels. Captain John Mason, a boy of about nine years old at the time of the raid, later recalled that the British took three fishing vessels as prizes, the Orient, the Sophronia, and his own father's Rosebud, and burned five or six others. A History of Situate, published in 1831, says that ten vessels, fishing, and coastal craft were lost. Mason also stated that the barges belonged to the British frigate Nymph and 74-gun La Hogue, though the latter named vessel has not been discovered among the Navy lists at the time, and the Situate history referenced above claims they came from the 74-gun HMS Bulwark. It is not clear whether he was referring to this raid or a subsequent landing, but a biographical entry for Captain Mason records that he, quote, remembered once when a fleet of these boats were coming in that the women began to carry off their beds and furniture, but an officer in one of the British boats cried out, Good women! Don't carry your beds off. We ain't going to hurt you. The British did not disembark when burning the ships in the harbor on June 11th. Six days later, on June 17th, according to committee reports from the 30th United States Congress, a British ship of war, two brigs, and several small craft came to anchor near Situate Harbor. Colonel John Barstow's militia were called out on July 9th when a British warship, variously identified as the Bulwark by some and by Congress as the Nymph, demanded provisions from the town which were not furnished. The militia remained on guard that summer, but the British did not reappear. In late August, the HMS Bulwark did reappear after the local militia had been called away, and it was that ship that the girls spotted in the harbor. It was recalled by an eyewitness, Ensign Otis, who, upon rising early, saw an English ship anchoring off the harbor and warned the inhabitants of the little village. 
The version of the story printed in St. Nicholas, which has Rebecca as the drummer, unlike other accounts where she is said to have played the fife, also describes the British arriving offshore in the morning at low tide and only launching boats at high tide around 2 p.m. This tale conflates events from previous raids and was written to inspire young readers with the heroism of the Bates girls, so it must be taken with a heavy dose of salt. Another version of the story, written in 1905 by Albert Franklin Blaisdell and Francis Kingsley Ball, reads, Only 30 years after the Revolution, we began our second struggle against the mother country. It came about in this way. Great Britain had wanted more men for her large navy, and so she captured our merchant ships on the high seas, carried off our sailors, and impressed them into her service. The United States at that time was a feeble nation with less than 20 warships. In spite of this, the people would not bear these insults, and so in June 1812, Congress declared war. The little village of Situate on the coast of the old Bay State was a great fishing place in those days. Sometimes a hundred boats ran into the harbor for shelter. Near the village lived a lighthouse keeper named Bates, whose oldest daughter was called Rebecca. It was a fine morning in August, and Rebecca was busy polishing the lantern. Looking over the sparkling ocean, she saw a strange vessel in the bay slowly making for the shore. That must be the British warship we heard of yesterday, thought the frightened girl. She ran down the steep lighthouse stairs and across the yard into their cottage. Mother, she cried, get the glass and look. There's a big warship in plain sight. The lighthouse keeper had gone to the village on an errand. There was nobody at home except his wife, his two little boys, and his two daughters. Rebecca, who was about 17, and Abigail, who was about 15. Mrs. Bates watched the vessel through the spyglass. Of course that is a British ship, she said, and it looks as if it were making for our harbor. Run over to the village, boys. Find your father and give the alarm. You may be sure all the village people kept a sharp lookout on that distant ship. I can remember the revolution. The British bombarded the seaport villages. They came ashore at Martha's Vineyard and burnt the churches and several houses. That warship can sink every boat in the harbor and burn the village, said a young fisherman. For two hours, the vessel tacked and stood off to sea. Then, as the tide began to flow, she made for the shore. It was high tide at two o'clock. With all her sails set, the great warship swept grandly over the bar and anchored at a point of land half a mile from the lighthouse. The boats were lowered, and the helpless people saw the soldiers rapidly nearing the shore. What a running to and fro there was in the village. Nets, clothing, and all kinds of household goods were loaded into hay carts and hurried away behind the sand hills. The women and children hastened off to the woods. The two sisters sat watching from the lighthouse tower. Five large boats were close to land. They were rowed by sailors in blue jackets and filled with soldiers in bright red coats. How the guns glittered! How the gold lace on the officers' uniforms sparkled! Oh, my, if I were only a boy, said Rebecca, I'd take father's old gun and go over to the village and help the men fight. I know what we'll do, suddenly cried Abigail. Let's take father's drum and beat it. You know how to drum, Rebecca. That's just the thing, said the older girl. We'll take the fife in mother's bureau drawer, too. You can play that. We'll hide behind the sand hills and give them Yankee Doodle. Perhaps we can fool them. The excited girls got the drum and covered it with a shawl. Then they found the fife, and away they went to the outside beach. Creeping behind the low sand hills in the beach grass, out of sight of the soldiers, they sat down on the sand to tighten the drum and softly try the fife. 
We must march along the outside beach toward the lighthouse, just as if we were head of a regiment, said Abigail. Good, answered Rebecca. We'll make them think that soldiers have come from Boston to help us fight. Rebecca beat the drum in a lively fashion. Abigail worked on the fife. This was too much for the young girls. In spite of their fears, Rub-a-dub-dub beat Rebecca in a lively fashion. Squeak, squeak, squeak went Abigail's fife. This was too much for the young girls. In spite of their fears, they stopped marching and sat down on the sand to laugh. This will never do, cried Rebecca. We shall spoil everything. I will behave better next time, said Abigail. Let us try again. Forward, march, one, two. Louder and louder rolled the drum, and clearer and clearer whistled the fife. Across the harbor, the men in the village were listening. That's the soldiers from Boston coming to fight, they said. Meanwhile, the redcoats were setting fire to a fishing sloop. The officers were amazed at the sound of the music. Can it be possible, one said, that the Yanks are marching a regiment down to the point? If they have cannon with them, all our boats will be shut up in the harbor. The drums are coming nearer, and there is the sound of the fife. Hark! Of all tunes in the world, those impudent fellows are playing Yankee Doodle. Quick, men, cried the commander. The Yankees will sink every boat unless we can get past that point. There was no time to talk. It was a question of getting out of the harbor and reaching their ship. One young officer in his haste fell overboard and spoiled his fine uniform. How the sailors pulled through the channel, close to the lighthouse point. Every moment they expected a regiment to open fire upon them at close range. The captain of the warship thought he must do something to help. He ran out his big gun and fired at the lighthouse, but no harm was done. Soon after dark, the British man-of-war sailed away. The story continues. The two sisters, old in years, but still brave in spirit and strong in patriotism, died only a few years ago. And here the story ends. We note here that an article in the 1886 Manchester Press titled An American Army of Two states that Rebecca passed away on December 13th of 1881, and Abigail, to whom the article was dedicated, died on March 17th, 1886, at the age of 89. This next interesting tidbit came from C. Wellington Furlong, who, as a small boy, summered in situate, and recalled, Next door to the Merritts lived Becky Bates, then a very old woman, who in boyish wonderment I often watched her pull her corncob pipe and listen to her story. During this war, the British four-gun HMS Bulwark in 1814 sent boats into the harbor and burned the shipping because the selectmen of the town, descendants of the men of Kent, obstinately refused the British demand for supplies. Not long after, Becky told me another British warship, the HMS La Hogue, appeared, dropped anchor a mile or so offshore, and her barges loaded with marines pulled toward the harbor with obvious intention of burning the town. Becky, then about 16, was alone in the lighthouse with her younger sister Abigail. Becky quickly seized her brother's fife and her younger sister Abigail the drum. Sneaking out of their lighthouse home, they followed behind the cedar-covered sand hills at the point, beating a lively tattoo to the tune of Yankee Doodle. The Marines, who had believed the town undefended, hearing the rhythmic strains wafted toward the ship's boat, thought the town garrison was marching out, returned to the ship, and the La Hogue sailed away. Whether or not things transpired as later remembered or long repeated, no churlish iconoclast has definitively debunked the legend of the American Army of Two, and far be it from me to do so. 
Becky and Abby Bates remain heroines in the hearts of many. And why not? If you ever find yourself on Old Lighthouse Road in Situate, Massachusetts, there's a historical sign there that was placed in 1976. It reads, the dates at the top, 1636 and 1976. Old Situate Lighthouse. During the year 1810, the U.S. Congress voted $4,000 to build a lighthouse at Situate Harbor. During the War of 1812, Abigail and Rebecca Bates, young daughters of the lighthouse keeper, prevented a British naval force from sacking the town by playing a fife and beating a drum. They have gone down in history as the Army of Two, and their courageous act has been recorded in many textbooks and storybooks. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories Network, where we bring you two podcasts, our 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and our newest edition, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Our shows are enjoyed worldwide at iTunes and all podcatcher sites, as well as our website at www.1001storiespodcast.com. We ask that you stop a minute and contribute just $1 a month or more to help our shows to pay expenses. And you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash 1001heroes. Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you, and thanks for sharing and giving us reviews at iTunes. This helps us grow. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.